Unto the grave what shall we sing but that Christ lives. Christ he lives. Jesus you live and have risen. You died and came to bring us eternal life. Eternal life with you. This is the reward that heaven brings us. This is the reward that we long for. Knowing you and enjoying you forever as the true good, the true beauty, the true everlasting one. Death cannot touch. Would you help us as we descend a little bit deeper into the depths of confronting our own mortality? As we think on death and remember death, Would you help us see this as a path to joy in you? Would you make your promises very great and precious? Would you feed us this morning in our souls with what is needful? Everyone here and everyone listening to this message, I pray that you would meet us and feed us with a feast from your word that gives us a foretaste of the feast to come that we long for and wait for. So would you help us by your spirit? Would you help me as I proclaim your word? Would you make yourself known, we pray. Amen. Amen, friends. Go ahead and turn in your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. The title of this morning's sermon is Enjoying Life by Remembering Death. We learn to enjoy our life by remembering death. In this small section of Ecclesiastes, we have concentrated here one of the strongest and kind of bleakest confrontations with death in all of the book. In a book that's really filled with a lot of honesty about death. The preacher here is being about as bare bones honest as he can about the reality and the sadness and the tragedy and the horror of death. And yet in this same section, he is also giving one of the strongest exhortations in the whole book to enjoy life. Nowhere else in the book does he go into as much detail And uses many commands to tell his listener to enjoy life. How can these things both be true? How can they fit together? How can a meditation on death on the one hand and an exhortation to enjoy life on the other hand possibly be part of the same sermon? That's key to our understanding of this text this morning, we are going to ask and answer that question. How do these two fit together? How do we learn to enjoy life by remembering death? Think on that as we read the text this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all. 
Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And as he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved of what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong nor bread to the wise nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. As we walk through this text, we are going to meditate on the reality of death And I think it is a good question for us to consider before we begin. Why preach on death? We know that Christ has died and conquered death. So why spend time talking about death? Why not just skip straight to the good news of eternal life? This is a good question. It's an important one to consider. The preacher does not shy away from the reality of death. Even though... He knows there is life in God. To help us consider this question, I want to read a few short passages from a book called Remember Death by Matthew McCullough. This book is one I would commend to you as a helpful resource to think about these things, to think about them in a gospel light. Because the subtitle of the book, believe it or not, on a book called Remember Death is The Surprising Path to Living Hope. This is a book about ultimately the gospel, not about death. He says that in here. I want to think, though, why preach on death? Here's what he says on page 23. He says this, quote, When the reality of death is far from our minds, the promises of Jesus often seem detached from our lives. These promises seem abstract, belonging to another world from the one I'm living in disconnected from the problems that dominate my field of view. In other words, the promises of the gospel are so centered around the promise of 
the eternal life that overcomes death. That if death is not on your mind, hearing that you have eternal life won't do anything for you. It won't stir your soul. It won't cause you to long for it because you aren't really thinking about the fact that death is your biggest problem. He says again, a few pages later, even if your life plays out in precisely the way you imagine for yourself, in your wildest dreams, death will steal away everything you have and destroy everything you accomplish. As long as we're consumed by the quest for more out of this life, Jesus' promises will always seem otherworldly to us. He doesn't offer more of what death will only steal from us in the end. He offers us righteousness, adoption, God-honoring purpose, eternal life, things that taste sweet to us only when death is a regular companion. In other words, what Jesus gives us, the promises of the gospel are sweet to us because of our need, because we will die. And the gospel deals with that. If we're consumed with getting what we want, the gain we long for out of this life, and those illusions aren't shattered by the reality of death, the gospel won't be sweet. It won't matter to us. That's what he's saying. One more time, he says this. He's actually quoting from a guy named Walter Wangeren in this. He puts it this way. If the gospel seems irrelevant to our daily lives, That is our fault, not the gospel's. For if death is not a daily reality, then Christ's triumph over death is neither daily nor real. Worship and proclamation and even faith itself take on a dreamlike, unreal air. And Jesus is reduced to something like a long-term insurance policy, filed and forgotten. Whereas he can be our necessary ally, an immediate, continuing friend, the holy destroyer of death and the devil, my own beautiful savior. If Jesus is like a long-term insurance policy to you, filed away so that you know you have your passport to heaven stamped, and that's all you think about, the promises of the gospel will mean nothing to you. Because the promises of Jesus in giving us eternal life that conquers death are so much deeper and richer. And one of the best ways to see them is to look the reality of death square in the face. It's what the preacher does in Ecclesiastes here, and that's what we're going to do this morning. Against the dark background of death, the promises of eternal life in the gospel are going to shine bright. But we've got to look at the darkness of death first. So let's start by that. There's really two parts to this sermon and this text. The first part is remember your death. The second part is going to be enjoy your life. So we'll get there. But the first part is remember your death. This is verses 9, or excuse me, chapter 9, verses 1 to 6, and verses 11 to 12. They bookend this idea of enjoying your life. I'm going to read these texts again, but before I do, I want to think about a few things about them. The preacher is talking about death in general. He's talking about the reality that all die. But I want us to think about death specific. Because death in general is something that we all know exists, but it kind of exists out there. We live in a culture that is so far separated from death. 
that it's hard for some of us to grasp the reality of our own death. I recognize that's not true for everyone listening this morning. I recognize some of you are intimately acquainted with death. And that it's not hard for you to imagine your own death. I recognize then that staring at death even harder will probably be hard for you. But I want to encourage you that there is hope at the end. There is hope passing through this dark valley. And we'll see it this morning. And our look at it will help you too. But especially, I want to talk to those who, when you think about your own death, it seems like something that's impossible. Even though you know it's a reality. This morning, we're going to look at remembering death by remembering your death. So when on the slides up there this morning, it says things like everyone dies, even you. And if you're one that takes notes, I want to encourage you to write it as everyone dies, even me. I want us to think about this in the reality of your own death. That will help you experience the preciousness of the promises of the gospel this morning. So let's read the preacher's meditation on death one more time before we dig in. Verses 1 through 6. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And as he who swears, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. And then skipping ahead to verses 11 and 12. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This morning, I want us to see four lessons from the preacher. Four lessons about your death from the preacher this morning. Lesson number one. Everyone dies, even you. Everyone dies, even you. That's his point when he says in verse two that the same event happens to both the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil. He's comparing these categories and saying it doesn't matter if you're super righteous or super evil. You will still die. It doesn't matter if you make sacrifices in obedience to God or don't. You will still die. Death, in other words, is inevitable, certain. The same event happens whether you are rich or poor, whether you are good or evil, whether you are clean or unclean, 
Whether you keep your promises or don't. That's what he's talking about when he talks about oaths. The same event happens. Even to those, like he says in verse 1, who are in the hand of God. The same event happens. Everyone dies, even you. This means that God does not stop your death. If even everyone in the hand of God dies, God does not stop your death. The reality is you will die. What this tells us is that death is not an anomaly. Death is not something that's so bizarre and far out that it doesn't happen. Our culture thinks about death as an anomaly and trains us to think about death as something that doesn't happen to us. We are so far separated from the reality of death in this culture because of the time we live in and the medical advances we have. Think about it. Where do people usually die? They usually die in a hospital surrounded by doctors, maybe with family if you're able to be there at the end. But you don't sit and hear them go through the death rattle where their breathing becomes labored and you can tell they're coming to death. You don't have their body sit in repose in your upstairs bedroom while you wait for the funeral. You send it to a morgue and the mortician cares for the body and dresses it up nicely and makes it look like it's maybe still got some life in it. We live in a culture where we are separated by death, and death is a rare occasion, it feels like to us. And so we think of death as an anomaly, as something that doesn't really happen. This was so different hundreds of years ago. Think about 1600s as the early colonies are being populated by colonists coming over from Europe. During that time, in the early 1600s, It was common for people to have an average of nine children and for at least three of them to die before they reached adulthood, which meant the norm for living in that time period was that if you got married and started having kids, you were going to bury some of your kids before they reached adulthood. The norm during that time was if you got married and started having kids, If you were the husband, the chances were your wife may not survive childbirth. And if you were a wife, the chances are you may not survive giving birth to your own children. The norm during that time period was that if you got a fever, you weren't worried about missing work or school or those kind of things. You were worried about dying. And you were worried about giving whatever you had to the rest of your family and killing them too. Death was a daily and constant companion It was not an anomaly. It was definitely something that could happen to you. But we live in such a different time now. And praise God for medical advances. I am grateful that it is much less likely now that having children, you will have to bury some of your children than it was then. But it still happens, right? Death is still a reality. It's just more removed from our consciousness We need to be reminded by the preacher that we die. Everyone dies, even you. This means that death is a great equalizer. 
It's not something that happens to someone else. It's something that happens to you. And this means that you are not too important to die. We think of ourselves as the main character in our story, right? We think of the world through our own mind, and we can't imagine the world without us. And yet the reality is death humbles us by teaching us that we're not too important to die. In fact, we will all die. This is the first lesson of the preacher. Everyone dies, even you. The second lesson of the preacher is that death is always unexpected, especially yours. Death is always unexpected, especially yours. Now, you might think, well, wait, only aren't tragic and unexpected deaths like the death of an infant unexpected or someone suddenly gets struck by a car and is killed? That's certainly unexpected. But I think the reality is when we look at the preacher's words in verses 11 and 12 and he compares the coming of time and chance or the coming of your death to being snared in an evil net like fish or being caught in a trap like a bird. I think the reality is that for all of us, death comes unexpectedly. Even if you know you've got a terminal illness, And your death is approaching. It's still unexpected. It's still, you don't know the hour when you're going to take your final breath. You don't know what is going to be your last meal. This terrifies us, right? This is why we have a trend in our culture of thinking about end of life in terms of euthanasia. Can I choose when I'm going to die so I don't have to face the unexpectedness of death? All death is unexpected. When we're young, we think of death as something abstract that happens to other people. But as we age, death becomes closer and closer and more real, doesn't it? We see an animal dead by the side of the road and we realize as a a kid, things die. And then we have maybe a pet die. And we realize that death is sad. It happens and it hurts. And then as we get older, we start to experience maybe distant relatives dying. And we think, wow, that's strange. I just saw them. And then as we get older, as time and chance happen, someone close to us dies. And we start to realize death is real. And as we get even older, maybe we're diagnosed with something. And we realize, I'm going to die. And it becomes extra real. But we never really quite grow to Expect it, I think. Death is always unexpected, especially yours. No matter how close we come, we never get used to the idea of dying. It's unnatural to us. I think COVID has exposed this tendency in us, right? Because with COVID, we're getting more reminders that death is real. We're getting more reminders of the reality that time and chance happen to the young and the healthy just as much as they happen to the old, to the ill. We're reminded that death is real. We tend to assume that death is someone else's problem, but we're reminded that it's our problem. We tend to think that those we love and we ourselves are entitled to life, but death tells another story. 
We tend to think that if we do enough, we can death-proof our lives. So at least death becomes something we don't have to think about for 30 or 40 years. The COVID has come and shattered all of those illusions. This is one of actually the good things to come about from COVID, is that you and I are much more aware of death. This is good because, again, death leads to the promises of the gospel. So lesson number two, death is always unexpected, especially yours. We need to learn to expect it. Lesson number three from the preacher, all deaths are tragic, even yours. Again, this is not just, oh, he or she died too young and it's tragic. That is tragic. But that's not why death is tragic. Death is always tragic because death is not natural. We live in a world and in a society that thinks of tragic death as someone dying before their time and thinks of an older person who's lived a long, full life, eventually dying in their sleep as normal. Friends, that's not normal. Both are tragic. I say that because we were not created to die. Right? Death is a terrible miracle. That shouldn't be able to happen to people who were created to live forever. This means that all death is tragic. I want to read something that Matthew McCullough says on page 68 about this, which I think is helpful for us. He says, there's a massive disconnect between what we feel about ourselves and what death implies about who we are. But for the Bible, this disconnect goes right to the heart of death's origin and purpose. Death is not the natural end to a merely biological life. Death is an intrusion into the perfect world of the creator designed by that same creator to make a point. Death is a punishment for human pride. It exposes our foolish confidence in our freedom to be whoever we want to be. Death is a punishment for human pride. Death is tragic precisely because death is a punishment, a consequence of sin. Genesis 2, what did God say? He told Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, chapter, or excuse me, verse uh, 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Genesis 2.17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God created a world without death, a world where Adam and Eve were meant to live forever. And it is a terrible miracle that they can now die. It's a miracle of consequence because of sin. Paul picks up that theme in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, he says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. I realize that's a sentence fragment, but I want you to hear Paul's reasoning there. Just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. In other words, death is a tragedy. All deaths are tragic, even yours, because death is a consequence of sin. 
That's the third lesson the preacher wants us to see. This, he says this this way in chapter 9, verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. This evil that he sees under the sun, that this death happens to all. He's calling it an evil, not making a moral judgment on what God has done, but calling it an evil from our perspective, that it is tragic, that it is heartbreaking. Part of the tragedy of death is the preacher's point number four, lesson number four he wants to teach us, which is that death swallows everything, especially what you love. Death swallows everything, especially what you love. Look at verse five, the second half of verse five. After he talks about what the living know, he says the dead know nothing. They have no more reward. Their reward has been swallowed by death. For the memory of them is forgotten. Death destroys every memory of you. A hundred years from now, it is unlikely anyone will know your name. 200 years from now, 300 years from now, it's unlikely anyone will know that you lived. Every memory of you will be gone. Because death takes it all. The preacher continues in verse 6. He says, Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. Everything they loved on this earth is gone. Everything you love on this earth will be taken from you by death. Everything you hate on this earth will no longer matter to you because you'll be dead. Everything you wish you could have that you think, maybe if I just had this, my soul would be satisfied, will not matter at the hour of your death. That's what the preacher is saying. Their love, their hate, their envy, they've already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. One of the horrible things about death is that there's no going back. There's no do-overs. It is all swallowed by death. I want to read how... McCullough puts it because, again, I think it's so helpful for us to drive this point home deep into our hearts so that the gospel can shine bright. Here's what he says. This world is a marvelous place. We enjoy the beauty of its landscapes, its music, its arts and cultures. And above all, we enjoy its people, our spouses and children, our parents and grandparents, our brothers and sisters and friends and neighbors. Yet it is precisely our love of the good things in life that gives death much of its power over us. Under death's shadow, time and decay reach as far as our love and their grip on the things we love is stronger than ours. One of my goals in this book is to help us recognize the shadow of death in places we may not have seen it before. Death is a biological event, the end of the heart's beating, the lungs breathing and the brain's processing, but it is also far more. There's no confining death to the moment at which your life ends. Its effects are everywhere. Death is not so much an event as a process with a final culmination, a siphoning process that separates us from what we love so that in the end, everyone loses everything. That's what the preacher says here, isn't it? All of these things perish in death. Death swallows everything we love. The reality, friends, that we must realize is that death casts a shadow over your whole life. When the preacher says in verse 3, 
that the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. He's not talking about their moral state. He's not saying here, as he has other places, that their hearts are devoted to evil. He's talking about evil in the same way he talked about a man's trouble lying heavily on him. He is saying that in light of this reality that all die, even you, that the shadow of death weighs heavy on our souls. Day in and day out, friends, the reality is that we live every day in the valley of the shadow of death. This is what the preacher wants us to know. This is what we need to know. The question, though, is how do we live here? This is the reality that we live under. How do we live in that reality? Our world tries some options, don't they? If I'm going to die for certain, then I'm going to live hedonistically in this life, wringing every ounce of joy I can from it, in defiance of death. It might sound like a good idea for a while, and it might even work for a little bit while you live, but that will not offer you solace and comfort in the hour of your death. Because everything you put your hope in will eventually be taken from you. Some of us might be tempted to try the stoic approach and say, well, if I'm going to lose everything, then I'm never going to get attached to anything. If I never love anything, then I will never hurt when it's taken away. Then you're going to live an empty life and still die. It's not actually going to help. It's not going to do anything to solve this problem that you cannot avoid. For most of us, death is winning, but it won't win for long. I heard that. (laughs) Life is coming. For most of us, how we respond to death is by just denying it, by letting it sit in the back of our minds, bugging us a little bit, but pushing it out enough to go on with life. We feel like we don't have any other choice. And when we come to a text like this that confronts us with the reality, we shy away from it. We don't want to look. But friends, the gospel offers a better alternative. The preacher hints at it, In verses 4 and 5. Look what he says in verse 4. In the midst of this meditation on death, he says this. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. What is the hope, you might say? What is the hope that all the living have? Here's what he says in verse 5. He says, for the living know that they will die. What is the hope that you have? It's the fact that you know you will die. Now, why is that hope? How does that work? How does knowing you will die bring any kind of hope? Knowing that we will die, death awareness causes us to confront the true problem of life. And confronting that true problem head on, our only option is to look for a solution, right? Our only option is to look for something that will conquer death. Our only option is to long for something that will conquer death. And that leads us to the resurrection and the life. 
McCullough finishes this quote that I read just a moment ago. He says, quote, Death is not so much an event as a process with a final culmination, a siphoning process that separates us from what we love so that in the end, everyone loses everything. But when we recognize this truth, when we acknowledge it and don't shrink back from it, we join the path to deeper, fuller joy in the promise of a deathless world where what we love won't ever pass away, a world promised to us by the one who is the resurrection and the life. When we look at this reality in the face, we start longing for and looking for the promise of a deathless world, the promise of the resurrection and the life. Our death awareness does that for us. That's where we're going to go next. That's what we're going to look at now as we look at the preacher's commands to enjoy life. He says in verse 7, in the face of death, go. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved of what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. The preacher is making commands, giving imperatives here. And we can categorize them in three kind of broad groups. When he says in verse 7, go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. I call that feasting. Go, feast, he says. How does that make sense? Then, in verse Eight, he talks about garments always being white and oil not lacking on your head. I think that's tied in with feasting as well. This idea that you're not going to sit in sackcloth and ashes, not taking care of yourself because the reality is you will die. But instead, you're going to go and enjoy the feast. In verse 9, he says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. I think he would broaden that exhortation to say, enjoy life with the children that you love. Enjoy life with the parents that you love and the brothers and sisters and the friends and the neighbors. A category we might call fellowship. Go feast in the face of death. Go fellowship in the face of death. And then he ends in verse 10, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. Go work in the face of death. Just because you will die and your death is certain, doesn't mean you don't go and do your work on Monday. Instead, we strive to have fruitful work. These categories of fellowship and feasting and fruitful work are categories that the preacher gives us that give us hints at what the thread of the promise we need is. See, these are tied to a greater promise running throughout all of Scripture that meets us and overcomes death. The hint that where these are tied to is the whole of Scripture is actually in verse 7. When the preacher says, go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do, we need to ask ourselves, where has God approved of feasting? Where has God approved of eating and drinking? The first place that God approves of that is all the way back in Genesis. 
So let's tug on this thread a little bit and see what the preacher wants us to see about the promise that overcomes death. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Together, male and female, they had fellowship. And then what did God tell them to do? God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What did he tell them to do? He told them to go and have fruitful work. And then what did he give them? Verse 29, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. In other words, at the very beginning, when God created us as eternal beings, he gave us feasting, eating every tree, every, every fruit from every tree that was good for us. And he gave us fellowship, man and woman together in the garden, naked and unashamed. And he gave us fruitful work to do. Go and be fruitful and fill the earth. He gave us all of this, and yet we know from the story of the Bible that it didn't last long. Because Adam and Eve rebelled against that, didn't they? And sin brought death and curse to these things. Genesis 3, verses 16 to 19. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, But you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In other words, because of sin, because death entered into the world, our feasting is cursed. Our fellowship with one another is cursed. The work that we do is no longer fruitful, but futile. But the story doesn't end there. God promises to reverse the curse. In Isaiah... He makes these promises and he uses the image of feasting to describe this promise of overcoming death. Listen to this, Isaiah chapter 26, verses 6 to 9. Excuse me, Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain. The covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. God is going to wipe away death forever. He's going to swallow up the veil that is spread over all peoples. We walk in the valley of the shadow of death 
every day. And yet God has promised he's going to remove that shadow. And the image he gave us to help us think about this promise, to help us long for this promise, to help us hope for this promise, is a feast. A feast that is good with bread and wine. And a feast that is full of fellowship with all peoples. These are the images that the scripture uses over and over to bring us to remembrance the promise of the new creation, to help us think about the promise of the new creation. These are echoes of Eden in this promise. These are echoes of the very good in the garden. They're not just echoes, though, of what was. They're not just reminders of the very good. They're foretastes of what is to come. They're foretastes of the new creation. Every time in Scripture that God provides bread for his people, every time that he gives them good wine that they don't deserve, he's giving them a little taste of the feast to come. Every time in Scripture that there is brokenness in relationships restored, that peoples that were once enemies are brought to be friends, reconciled with one another. Every time that happens, it's a foretaste of this new creation to come. Every time work is accomplished and not just futile. Every time God's people rest from their labors because he does the work. It is a reminder and a foretaste that there's this promise that echoes throughout all of scripture that God will swallow up death forever. This echoes all through the Old Testament and it's ringing in our ears still when we come to the New Testament and hear Jesus. Guess what he's accused of in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 33 and 34 says, For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What did Jesus come and do? He feasted with tax collectors and sinners. He fellowshiped with them, the outcast and broken of society who had no hope. He accomplished his work among them, and it was fruitful. Jesus himself is grabbing on to this promise. That one day death will be swallowed up and he's doing it. He comes and he says to the people, I am the bread of life. All who come to me will never hunger. All who come to me will never thirst. I give eternal life. He makes this promise that he overcomes death and then he does it. He does it. By himself, walking through the shadow of death and letting it pass fully over him and submitting to death on the cross. And then by the Spirit being raised up to new life, he brings us this promise of resurrection that death has been defeated. We read about that in 1 Corinthians 15, right? When when Paul writes to the Corinthians and says Jesus is raised from the dead and this is our hope, one day he will return and we will be changed. And then will come to pass the saying, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Because it's been swallowed up 
by Christ. He brings us this promise. And he brings us the expectation of an ultimate feast to come. See, this theme of feasting in fellowship with one another doesn't just end with Jesus' fellowship with his disciples. It's carried all the way into the book of Revelation, the very end of our Bibles. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for... The marriage supper of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Friends, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the reality is that if you are in Christ Jesus, you are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. To feasting that is untainted by death. Feasting in a land where there is no more death. Where every tear is wiped away. Sadness is no more because our God has made a new creation and we are with him. And nothing can take that away. This is the promise that feasting and fellowship and fruitful work all through the scriptures point to. Every time in the scriptures we read about feasting and every time we ourselves feast, we feast as appetizers for this meal to come. This marriage supper of the lamb that we're waiting for. It's meant to whet our appetite. Every time we fellowship, enjoy the beauty of imperfect but still glorious fellowship on this earth. It's a faint reflection of the one day fellowship that we will have around the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. With people from every tribe and tongue and nation. With those who we struggle to get along with in this life. But who are united together with us in Christ. Every time. We do that. It's a dim reflection of what's to come. Every time, friends, that we accomplish something on this earth, every time we make progress a little bit in our work, it's a small preview that one day there will be no more need for us to work this way because Christ has done it all. One day the work of the new creation will be fully consummated and we will enjoy it forever and death cannot take it away. This is why the preacher calls us to enjoy these things. To enjoy, he says, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. This is why the preacher calls us to enjoy life with the wife whom we love. This is why the preacher calls us to still do work. Because these echoes of the good of Eden and these foretastes of the new creation are not ends in themselves. But they're merely things to whet our appetite. Every good you have that you are afraid of losing is nothing compared to what you gain in Christ. 
And so you can enjoy good, even though you know you'll lose it. God's people have done this for years, centuries, millennia. This is what God's people did in the Old Testament. They still enjoyed the good that he gave. They still feasted, didn't they? They still fellowshiped with one another, even though knowing these relationships would eventually end with death. They still did work in commandment to the Lord, and they still rested on the Sabbath. This is what the early church did, even after the resurrection, right? They broke bread together, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and they prayed together. They gathered, they fellowshiped, they feasted, they did work. This is even what Jesus himself did in the face of death. He came, if anyone knew he was going to die, that his death was certain, that his death was tragic, that his death was unexpected, it was Jesus, right? He knew, and yet what did he do? He feasted, he fellowshiped, he worked, he enjoyed life. Because he knew that these things are all a foretaste of the glory to come. Friends, you and I can do that too. I want to encourage you to do that. As the preacher does, go and enjoy life. Knowing you will die. And knowing that you don't have to cling to what this life has. Because you have something better. How do we do this? I want to end briefly. With a reflection on Psalm 23. This is where it hit me the most powerfully this, uh, this week while I was preparing this sermon. If you've got a Bible with, turn to Psalm 23 for a minute. I think it's worth it. Psalm 23. If you think about this psalm like I do, or did prior to this week, which I think is common then you tend to think of this as the place we turn in crises, right? When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So when I walk through that valley, I'm going to turn to Psalm 23 and I'm going to reflect on it. And it's going to bring me comfort. And that's true and good. But here's the reality that we must remember. All of us, every day, Walk through the valley of the shadow of death. All of us. Every day. It's not just for times of crisis, friends. It's every day. And that means that the promises in Psalm 23 are for every day. Listen to this. Every day, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Every day, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Every day, he leads me beside still waters. Every day, he restores my soul. Every day, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Every day, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for every day. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Every day, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Notice, every day we can feast. 
Every day you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Every day you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Every day I am sure goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Every day, friends. Death cannot take that away. Let's pray.